When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to From Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and there are way more of you listening than I ever thought possible. To all of you, a profound thank you. This year has been a real roller coaster for me personally, and there have been times when this podcast and the love of my wife were the only things keeping me from selling everything and moving into the hills with my cat. Now that the baby is here, my time will be more restricted, but watching the new downloads roll in over the past weeks has really made all the time and money I've spent on this project feel like they were more than profound self-indulgence. That said, uh, and this is sort of a, a difficult thing to strike the right tone on. I try and keep things light, and I'm going to try and make this fun. But I do want some of your money. Between server costs and the cost of buying research materials, this isn't free. Uh, A lot of my startup capital was provided by a Kickstarter campaign. That money has now since been used. And not to put too fine a point on it, but I'm not exactly rolling in cash. All of this is to say nothing of the obscene amounts of time I put into this. So I've put up a donation button on the website, wittenberg to westphaliapodcastweeblycom and I would really appreciate it if you could donate as much money as you feel capable of donating. Now, lest this come off as a pure guilt trip, I am trying to make this fun, so here's the deal. If you go to the website and donate at any amount, you get to pick your own regnal name, and then I will read your regnal name on the next podcast. So if your name is Margaret and you donate any amount, you can put a note in with your donation or email me that you donated, and you can be read on the air as Margaret the Impaler. If you don't pick a regnal name, I will pick one for you, Margaret the Boneless, unless you tell me that you don't want to have a regnal name when you are read on the air, in which case I will read you as so-and-so, the anonymous peasant. Donation will also have your name entered on the fake family tree that we have under the donation button, which is very exciting. I've worked up a nice pitch for all this, and that's what I'm going to be using in future episodes. But I did want to announce this all in a little bit more of a solemn way to make it clear that I take your money seriously, and I really do appreciate your listening, and I really do appreciate anything you can give. If you can't give anything, that's fine, that's great. Maybe throw me an iTunes review or just a comment or an email saying I'm doing a good job. Thanks very much. Here's the episode. From this teeming Germany, then, innumerable troops of captives are often led away and sold for gain to the people of the South. And for the reason that it brings forth so many human beings that it can scarcely nourish them, 
there have frequently emigrated from it many nations that have indeed become the scourge of portions of Asia, but especially of the parts of Europe which lie next to it. Everywhere ruined cities throughout all Illyria and Gaul testify to this, but most of all in unhappy Italy which has felt the cruel rage of nearly all these nations. From the Historia Langobardorum by Paul the Deacon. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Hello and welcome. My name is Benjamin Jacobs and this is Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. This is episode number 13, Where Have All the Merry Romans Gone? Last time, we talked about the geology and geography of Italy and the islands, and discussed how the mountainous nature of the area magnified the economic and social importance of areas of relatively easier travel. Today we're going to discuss the people that lived in Italy, the challenges that they faced in the early medieval period, and the shape that their society took in the face of those challenges. For now, I would like to draw your attention to those twin images of Italy that I referred to in episode 11, the Roman Empire on one hand, and the Italian Renaissance on the other, and the big question mark in between. As is often the case, much of the lack of information is down to our popular narratives being created during the Victorian period, when the systemic examination of history was still just beginning, and anything that wasn't Rome was somehow considered less important. As is often the case with the early medieval period, the situation wasn't helped by the comparative dearth of primary source materials. Nonetheless, modern scholars have begun to make some exciting headway on this subject, partly through more careful examination of extant medieval sources like church records and court documents, and partly by bringing in the contributions of archaeologists, anthropologists, and others outside the strictest definition of the field of history. As is often the case, multidisciplinary research has been quite rewarding and has helped construct a more compelling narrative. Bits of this story will be familiar to listeners of Mike Duncan's History of Rome and Robin Pearson's History of Byzantium, but for the most part this is an era not well covered in the Potiverse. And so hopefully that, combined with the central importance of Italy in medieval European politics, will get me off the hook for the next sentence and the huge amount of backtracking that it implies. <clears throat> Let's begin in 476, in the court of Odoacer. Odoacer has become somewhat notorious in history as the man who destroyed the Western Roman Empire, but all he really did was put it out of its misery, and even that may be overstating things a little bit. Odoacer was the latest in a long line of generalissimos, who had all the real power, but existed behind the imperial Roman throne. The situation was based almost entirely on the bigotry against the people who made up the Roman military at this time, mostly foreigners and non-Romans. The Roman political class just couldn't countenance a German being the emperor, even though they had all the military power, and for most of the empire's history, that was really all you needed to be emperor. If things had been going the empire's way, who knows how long the situation would have gone on. But they really weren't, and they hadn't been for some time. When Odoacer took the step of sending the imperial regalia to the Eastern Empire and deposing the final Western Emperor, he was doing it in order to make the Western administration more efficient. Unfortunately, this act was considered illegitimate in the East, and so the Western Empire was over, at least according to the Eastern Romans. So far, the story should be familiar from other better sources. 
This was the event chosen by Edward Gibbon to signify the end of the Roman Empire, a decision lent immense academic inertia by the profound respect with which even modern historians view Gibbon. The date has an awful lot to recommend it. Imperial Roman power, as defined by legitimate descent from the Caesars, would never again have its seat in Italy. And yet there's a lot to oppose about this view as well. I mean, what is a legitimate Caesar anyway? Actually, that's a very good question. What is a legitimate emperor? There are legalistic answers to that, but I'd like to focus on the obvious philosophical one. The emperor is the emperor of the Romans. Odoacer and those like him were rejected for imperial status because they weren't Roman, and therefore couldn't be the leader of the Romans. But what is a Roman, then? Because the Romans were clearly no longer just people who lived in the city of Rome. They spanned an entire empire. They covered most of Europe and North Africa and parts of the Middle East, and they all called themselves Roman, so what did it mean to be Roman? Shared culture was a large part of it. The peoples in the empire had had a long, long time to share each other's myths and political narratives. It's difficult to say what this implied to people who were alive at the time, and how much of this was elite culture and how much of this was common culture. I think it's safe to say that amongst the elements of this shared narrative was a political ideology that valued culture, civilization, and, by the time of our story, Christianity. Much, if not most, of this was inherited from the Greek Hellenistic period, and held onto a fondness for open debate and logic despite being, in the time of our story, essentially a Christian dictatorship. On the political side, the machinery of government was both like and unlike the tools used in modern times. In terms of the primacy of the rule of law, the interventionist bureaucracy, and the expectation of taxation, it was much more like the modern state than the feudal society that would emerge from its ashes. In terms of the complete lack of political rights, the calcified class system, and openly flaunted corruption, it was very unlike our modern systems of government, at least in the developed world. The bureaucracy of the empire was also much like the modern state in terms of the flexibility of its geographic power structure. As much as we tend to think of the empire as centralized and authoritarian, most of the day-to-day -day life of the empire was governed away from the seat of central authority, either by regional or provincial governments, or else by what we might call municipal or even communal governments that operated on a local geographic scale. To modern constitutional theorists, this is very familiar. So, if you live in the United States, the federal government is not responsible for picking up your trash or delivering clean drinking water. Even though these are the governmental functions probably most likely to prevent your untimely death, these activities are performed locally by your town and county governments, bodies with no constitutional character in the United States, and which will likely never appear in a history book, and whose residents probably ignore it in most situations. In the Roman Empire, too, the day-to-day -day functions of government of most import to most citizens were similarly local. Things as mundane as basic urban planning, the maintenance of public hygiene, certain kinds of poor relief, and the delivery of justice were all located at the municipal level. More grand projects, like the construction and maintenance of aqueducts, roads, and the draining of marshes were also done at the municipal level, although sometimes the imperial government would give them a push and additional funding if the projects were of imperial significance. Podcast footnote. This is often read as a policy of bread and circuses, intended to keep people entertained and well-fed in order to prevent rebellions. There is certainly a strong aspect of this. It should be noted, however, that these kinds of local policies and building projects had their antecedents in the Greek cultural concept of the polis, 
wherein the city and its leaders were expected to undertake projects for the betterment of the city as a whole, whatever that implies, without any expectation of profit or reward. Glory and political power were certainly an aspect of this, and under the empire it did certainly factor into a generalized Roman policy of keeping the provinces quiet. But this had long cultural antecedents in both Greece and Rome, and came about as a gradual evolutionary process over the course of many centuries, not as the result of some sort of cynical handbook produced by the ancient Roman equivalent of the Rand Corporation. End podcast footnote. The major difference between modern conceptions of the municipal government and the Roman conception of municipal government, beyond the obvious issues of technology and democracy and things along those lines, was a question of identity. Citizens of a given city felt a very strong personal connection to that city that equaled or even exceeded their loyalty to the empire. Indeed, from a cultural perspective, being culturally Roman demanded residence in some sort of urban settlement and being as active a citizen of that settlement as was humanly possible. This was all part of that major Hellenistic cultural package that I referred to just now in the podcast footnote, the polis. Again, it's difficult to tell how much of this was elite culture and how much of this was common culture. Certainly in classical Greece, participation in the polis was restricted to the upper-class males, although women were expected to help indoctrinate the next generation into the culture of the polis by providing early childhood education and moral guidance. As far as the lower classes go, they probably had much more stake in the place that they actually lived than this abstract cultural concept of the empire. However widespread the cultural penetration, the concept of the polis remained important throughout the life of the Roman Empire. As a result, the machinery of the empire was developed with the goal of binding multiple urban settlements with the firm loyalty of their occupants into a single political entity. All the various regional and imperial governmental experiments which took place during the longevity of the Roman Empire were predicated on this underlying tension between the city and the empire. This bureaucratic form had developed primarily in and for Italy during the Republic and early Empire. As the political center of gravity moved away from Rome, Italy certainly lost some of its special status. Changes were made and structures were rearranged. But the key features remained that the imperial bureaucracy governed at the local level through municipal governments bound by loyalty and fear to the imperial structure. What this meant in practice could vary throughout the empire quite dramatically, but let's keep our gaze on Italy. Essentially, the Roman policy was that loyal territories brought within the empire could govern themselves through their traditional power structures, so long as those structures were stable. In practice, there were a lot of carrots and sticks that functioned to homogenize the cultures of the disparate territories that were conquered, and so over the life of the empire, tribal societies were encouraged to settle in cities, and existing cities were encouraged to adopt Roman law, particularly once all their residents became Roman citizens. In the countryside, the poor were encouraged to adopt Roman types of agricultural practice, with outcomes in terms of generalized health and economic well-being that were ambiguous at best. The clearance of vacant lands tended to be undertaken by the government of the nearest urban center, who then sold it off to private Roman citizens. This brought colonies of Roman citizens into new countryside areas, which tended to bring with it large-scale slave plantations. A lot has been said about the conditions of life on these slave plantations, but suffice it to say that although Roman slavery was a different animal from the type of race-based slavery practiced in the American South, no one chooses to be a slave, and no one really chose to be a slave on an agricultural plantation. At any rate, 
Just as the Romans famously built forms and temples to Jupiter in every city worth visiting, so too were the urban centers of Italy put under Roman legal codes and the countryside under Roman agricultural administration. In terms of governmental form, most cities had a oligarchical senate, just like Rome, presiding over some sort of popular assembly or town council. By the late empire, most popular assemblies had either been defanged or banned, leaving most local power in the hands of the local senate. The senate appointed local magistrates, collected taxes, and engaged in local infrastructure projects. These local senates were in turn overseen by regional administrators of the imperial bureaucracy. The senators could be held collectively responsible by imperial officials for things like the payment of taxes or for the maintenance of law and order. Once the empire converted to Christianity, the local bishop also became a key figure. As the church was initially outside the imperial governing structure, the church hierarchy did not always directly parallel the imperial one, as it changed over time, but most cities of any size had a bishopric that closely matched its municipal borders. The bishops were initially elected locally, in an often chaotic process that was not codified for many years. By 476, regional archbishops had the final say, but there are records of bishops being elected far into the Middle Ages. While the election of the bishop was probably a more open process than that used in senatorial decision-making, I think it's worth noting that in the post-Constantine world, the local senators probably had an outsized influence on the election process. One might wonder what kept the local governments loyal to Rome, other than abject fear of the army. Whilst fear is a powerful inducement to loyalty, Rome had many periods of weakness, where a city might press for more freedom with a reasonable hope of success. Why was this not done? What kept the cities in line and the bureaucrats at their desks? Cultural identity was a strong factor, but the shared culture resulted from the empire's longevity, and the longevity wouldn't have lasted if they hadn't been loyal for a long time. In part, this loyalty was fostered by colonization programs that we've already mentioned. It's hard to not be loyal to Rome when a significant part of your population is Roman. But equally important was the proclivity of the elites of the empire, including rather rapidly new elites of the empire, towards real estate speculation. The empire's expansion had provided opportunities all over the empire, and these properties kept the money flowing into Rome as much as the tax collectors did. The elites of other Italian cities participated in this boon as well, but even those who did not own land in Gaul and Africa often had land dispersed around their region. For these men and women, the maintenance of law and order was of personal benefit, as social decay would threaten their ability to collect rent, produce, and control their vast slave populations. The downside of this was that the really powerful men of the senatorial class did not hang around in Padua or Syracuse. They may have held a lot of land there, they may have even been born there, but if they had any political ambition or prospects at all, they went to Rome for their education and sat in the Roman Senate. The very fluidity of land ownership that bound the empire together meant that local senators were either on the political outs with the central government, or else were not the cream of the crop. This did help with the centralization of the empire, but it also constituted a brain drain on the provinces that may have contributed to the failure of governance there towards the end of the empire. So real estate was a very important part of the cohesiveness of the empire, but the biggest thing that kept the elites loyal was patronage. Patronage in a political context means the exchange of loyalty for economic benefit. At a most basic level, this is the buying and selling of votes for support. 
This was very common in the Roman Republic, and led to the growth of a system in the empire whereby the majority of urban citizens would spend the first part of their day going door-to-door in the wealthy sections of town, getting money from members of the senatorial class. This practice continued for a long time, possibly a confusing thing for some given that the poor had almost no role in politics after a few years under the empire. But this system functioned as the main social safety net in the cities, and it's never bad to have the great mass of the people on your side if you want to organize a mob. But patronage was not just something that happened for the poor. It was the glue that held the bureaucracy together. And I don't think this aspect of it is emphasized enough in most popular discussions of the subject. Middle and upper middle class people of the equites class filled most of the roles of the bureaucracy at both the imperial and local levels, and they received these roles as a result of political favor shown by senators. Holders of these bureaucratic offices could then use their position to extract money from the poor in terms of bribes and kickbacks and farmed taxes and whatever. They could also show favor to their senatorial patrons by not collecting taxes, by turning a blind eye to senatorial activities, or even by showing them economic favor with governmental contracts. If the senator had a policy he wanted advocated, having someone in the bureaucracy to back up that advocacy or to see that it was carried out could be an important factor in its success. This power structure was the most effective political organization ever known in the Mediterranean world, and was probably the best outside of China, but to say the least, it had some downsides. To put it bluntly, it was by definition corrupt and wasteful. If properly controlled, patronage could ensure that the ship of state was firing on all cylinders, but if members of the senatorial class were working at cross-purposes, or disagreed with an imperial policy, it could seriously undermine the ability of the empire to govern itself. It was also expensive. Though imperial positions came with salaries, they were not considered the main source of income for the people who held those positions. So some corruption was simply expected. As a result of all this, it was nearly impossible for the empire to set a fair tax rate or coherent economic policy. However much the empire asked for in taxes, however much they thought it was being paid per head or extracted specifically from the wealthy, more was actually being taken from the economy due to the use of tax farming and corruption, and much more of that burden was falling on the shoulders of the poor than imperial policy might dictate. So to put this another way, Tax farmers pay for the right to collect taxes and then pass off what the government asks for to the government, and the difference between what they collect and what they pass off to the government is their profit. So if the empire set a tax policy based on what they felt it was fair to ask the poor to pay, basically the tax farming policy gives the tax collectors carte blanche to collect whatever they want. So if I reduce taxes, that doesn't mean the tax collectors necessarily reduce what they collect. And this isn't just true for tax collection. Any aspect of government policy ends up being far more expensive than it needs to be, which takes a lot more money out of the economy. Of course, some of that money was coming back to the poor via handouts, but that was certainly not a situation that would encourage economic innovation. The situation was worsened as time went on. By the time of Diocletian, the currency was nearly worthless due to corruption in the mints, which left the empire in a state of near-total economic collapse. Diocletian instituted a series of laws tying farmers to the land and workers to their jobs, and demanding taxes be paid in kind rather than in cash. This put into law the gradual shift of the empire from an economy based on trade to one based on land. 
More importantly for our story, Diocletian had also eliminated any imperial support for municipal governments, meaning that they had to pay for themselves based on their own resources. In effect, based on the graft accumulated by the local senators. This seriously undermined the local governments, and led many senators to simply retire from public life and remove to their villas. The senators that remained struggled to maintain the existing infrastructure, and of course would have been less able to provide a basic standard of living for the poor via handouts. Gradually, the social safety net functions of the state moved to the church, which had its own system of tax collection and revenue accumulation. Unfortunately, the church could not take on infrastructure projects. As a result, by 476, we have ample evidence that some of the more ambitious Roman infrastructure projects, such as the drainage of the marshes in the Po River Valley, had fallen into disrepair, leading to the rise of water levels and the re-emergence of malarial marshes and increasingly problematic road infrastructure. As a result, trade networks were disrupted, grain supplies shrank, and diseases ran wild. The populations in cities shrank. This is all familiar in any story of the fall of the empire, and yet in Italy things functioned a bit differently than they did elsewhere. This was the core of the Western Empire, the place that had birthed the administration, and in the West at least, was the last part of the empire to fall. When Odoacer assumed the rule of Italy personally, ruling from the imperial redoubt in Ravenna, it was through the mechanisms of the pre-existing Roman administration. He didn't chuck out the bureaucracy with the imperial regalia. In fact, Odoacer comes down to us as working hand-in-hand -hand with the Roman Senate, consolidating his control over the bureaucracy, and working to secure and expand the holdings of the Western Empire. What ultimately brought Odoacer down was this very success. The Eastern Roman Empire at this time viewed Odoacer as illegitimate, and his successful expansion was a threat. Lest this seem paranoid, remember that, that the division between the Western and Eastern Empire was at this time in the Balkans, so the two shared a rather substantial and indefensible land border. Emperor Zeno engaged in several conspiracies against Odoacer, ultimately lending his moral support to an invasion of Italy by Theodoric the Goth. The war swung back and forth for several years, during which time the Burgundians took advantage of the situation to raid into northern Italy. Odoacer had the benefit of the professional remnants of the Roman army, while Theodoric had a substantially larger force and allies from outside Italy that periodically sent reinforcements. By 493 it was over, and Theodoric had emerged the victor, killing Odoacer with his own hands, apparently. Cool. With Gothic control over Italy, we might again expect to find the empire looted and in ruins, but really the fighting had been limited to a small part of the north. Theodoric too comes down to us as a very reasonable man, in all likelihood a semi-Romanized one as a result of years of serving as a Roman mercenary, and was interested in ruling Rome, not a smoldering ruin. Theodoric worked hard to get on the good side of the Senate, for example by ransoming all the prisoners taken in the Burgundian raids during the invasion years. Theodoric's biggest single contribution was to confiscate one-third of the land in Italy and use it to settle his men. While this was not super popular, it meant that the military was no longer being supported by the imperial tax system, nor staffed by the sons of native Romans. Instead, the army became a semi-professional military caste, paid in land revenues. This made things cheaper, which was rather popular. Gradually, a pro-Gothic party emerged in the bureaucracy and senate, and a hybrid Gotho-Roman political structure emerged. The Goths took pride in their military prowess and lived separately from the Romans on the income of their land. While, of course, the Romans prided themselves on being civilized and awesome. 
The Goths provided military protection in return for food from their poor tenants and loyalty, industrial production, and cash from the urban areas. Sound familiar? Ultimately, this early experiment in low-tax, semi-feudal Roman-style government by caste, based on land ownership, was disrupted by succession issues. I will spare you the details, but suffice it to say that as the palace intrigues raged, the Eastern Empire found itself with an energetic new emperor in need of a prestige project, a powerful military, lots of cash, and a military genius-level general. At the behest of Justinian I, who dreamed of putting the empire back together, the general Belisarius invaded North Africa and took it back from the Vandals in a few brilliant battles. He then crossed to and took Sicily, as the eunuch Narses led an invasion of the Balkan domains of the Goths. Belisarius was then sent into Italy and conquered all of it in a whirlwind campaign, culminating with a battle with the Franks, who were allied with the Goths, in 540. The campaign was swift and brilliant, but court intrigue brought Belisarius down before he could consolidate, and before the Goths were completely eliminated. Having overextended himself and left his main enemy alive, Justinian compounded the problem by not putting anyone in charge of the consolidation. Eastern bureaucrats were sent in, and Eastern Roman troops remained on the ground, but there was no one overall commander. The foreign Greek-speaking officials apparently held on to the land confiscated by Theodric, while also demanding back taxes dating to the fall of Odoacer. In essence, they picked the things from the old and new systems that got them the most money, and attempted to impose them on a people fresh from a war that ravaged the entire length of Italy, and had involved multiple brutal sieges, and not a few outbreaks of plague. In addition, military discipline was lax, and plundering apparently common. Meanwhile, the Goths consolidated themselves in the Po Valley and recovered their strength. And then the Great Plague of Justinian swept the empire which hit the starving, heavily trade-oriented citizens of Italy particularly hard, and the Persian War started, and the bumbling political appointees left in charge of Italy got the entire mobile army destroyed in a single laughably poorly directed battle at Faenza. At this point, Belisarius was sent back with insufficient resources and got bogged down in repeated sieges. Finally, Narsus arrived with a well-supplied army, having marched overland from the Balkans. Narsus was able to meet and defeat the Goths on the field, and drive off a number of other invasions across the Alps by 554. The Goths were finally eliminated, and the Roman Empire was back in control of the Roman heartland, but the place was a husk, and the Eastern Roman bureaucracy had not had time or stability to rebuild. Their venality made them unpopular, and the Roman Senate was left sullen and unenthusiastic about being reincorporated into an empire in which they were a peripheral part of the local administration. The countryside had been ravaged by Justinian's plague, and ravaged by plundering armies. The cities had been besieged numerous times, leaving the trade routes in tatters, and the laid-by stocks of wealth severely depleted. One aspect of this many often forget is that Rome's economy was based on slaves working the land. These wars destroyed that system, as both sides attempted to utilize whatever scrap of manpower they could find to their advantage, even runaway slaves. The agricultural estates of Italy were left without workers, and ruled by people who had no idea how to run an agricultural system without slave labor. And yet, the rumors of Rome's fall are still exaggerated. Ruling from the old capital of Ravenna, the Eastern Romans worked steadily to rebuild the regional administration, and the local urban administrations gradually reasserted themselves over their hinterlands. Landowners were able to control their land, despite physical distance, although this was getting harder and harder. 
Still, at this time we see the papacy ending up with vast possessions in northern Africa and Sicily, and the revenue from these possessions was plowed into rebuilding the Roman economy. So the Roman administration of Italy was mending, but this momentary pause did not last, and the source of the new trouble would of course be Constantinople. With the Eastern Romans overextended, plague-ravaged, and bogged down in the Persian Wars, Constantinople was now well into its policy of maintaining its northern borders by setting the different tribes against each other. One example of this was that of setting a small Germanic tribe, probably called the Winili, to attack the Gepids, a moderately annoying steppe tribe. The Winili proved victorious, absorbed the Gepids, and began moving west. As they crossed into the Alps, they found huge numbers of roving bands of Frankish, Burgundian, and Gothic warriors fleeing the Gothic Wars. These groups all joined the Winili coalition, becoming part of the tribe known for their long Germanic beards. And so it was that in 568, only 14 years after the end of the Gothic Wars, the Roman troops of northern Italy found themselves facing down yet another tidal wave of Germanic invasion. The king at the time, Albion, appears to have only been able to hold his coalition together for a short time, which may have been why they ended up being known by the epithet Lombard, as opposed to the tribal name of the king who originally brought them into Italy. Whatever the case, the initial invasion was well organized and disciplined, and the northern half of the Po Valley was secured quickly, with the eastern quarter becoming the Duchy of Friuli, and the western quarter becoming the Kingdom of Lombardy proper. This kingdom was itself parceled up into duchies that were handed out to various loyal retainers, generals, and relatives. The Eastern Roman garrisons could do little to oppose the Lombard progress, but hole up behind their city walls and hope that the invaders would wear themselves out. Coastal cities were supplied by the still powerful Roman fleet, and the fortifications of the interior were beyond easy assault, but with no mobile military forces, time was against the Romans. Long sieges may have followed, but one by one the cities fell. Of note is Pavia, which fell after a three-year siege, and was made the new capital of Lombardy. But in 569, things began to splinter. Bands of Lombards appear in the records crossing the Alps into our region of Greater France, and fighting with the Franks. In 572, Albion was murdered, and his successor in 574. Things were no longer looking tightly bound and organized. Groups of Lombards began crossing Byzantine territory and setting up semi-autonomous duchies in the southern part of Italy. Notably, the duchies of Spolento in the north of the Mark and Benevento in the inland areas of southern Italy, with the city of Benevento as their capital, oddly enough. And then, of course, the duchy of Tuscany in, well, Tuscany. After 574, there was a low-level civil war and an interregnum of ten years ensued. By now, there were 36 dukes of the Lombards, and these 36 dukes seem to have been very happy to live without central government for the time being. Of course, the Eastern Romans weren't blind to all this, and saw this as an opportunity to push back, and so they allied themselves with the Burgundians and the Franks to take advantage of the situation. The Lombards were finally galvanized into electing a new king, Autari, who successfully broke the encircling alliance by having his men come within the cities and hide behind the Romans' fortifications. The Romans didn't have the resources for sieges, and the Franks didn't have the know-how, and so ultimately the invasion was rolled back. Atari was succeeded by his son, Agilulf, who is credited with organizing the Lombard realm into its most stable form. There's some interesting things to note here before we move on. We might expect that the Gothic Wars and the Lombard invasion would have completely destroyed the Roman administration in Italy, but in fact the evidence is that it survived even this. Though our narrative sources are limited to a few chronicles by self-important churchmen, 
We do have a large number of laws and edicts passed by the Lombard and Eastern Roman rulers, and records preserved in Italian churches. These records show us that, within the Lombard kingdom, a lot of the elements of the Roman bureaucratic administration had survived. Italy was certainly devastated and hard-pressed, but it clung to its traditions. This was made possible by a number of factors. First was the form that the economy took at this time. Long-distance trade was no longer what it once was, but urbanism was ingrained into Italy. Many of the cities in this area had existed before the Romans had arrived, and preserved their own cultures and traditions, despite everything that Rome had thrown at them, and there was no way a few hairy barbarians were going to change all that. So though the cities at this time lost their productive and trade functions, they remained cultural centers inhabited by elites. The elites liked the cities for cultural reasons, and also because they were surrounded by big old walls, and that made them a safe place to store their stuff. As a result, the cities where all the production of the land owned by the wealthy flowed, and since the wealthy owned most of the land, most of the production flowed into the cities. This in itself had a great preservative influence, not only on the cities, but on everything that went along with Roman culture. The people living in the cities were not just rich, they were opinion makers, bureaucrats, and functionaries, and they basically were the bureaucracy. They and their neighbors were the most important participants in their part of the patronage network, and so that network would survive, as long as they did. So even as the wars raged across the countryside and the merchants stopped trading, and the poor either starved or left to find land in the countryside, and even some of the wealthy left for their villas, a core part of Romanness and the Roman bureaucracy sheltered behind the city walls. Even when the war reached the city gates, the experience seems to have not been that bad for the citizens. The Lombards and Goths, as we have said, were trying to rule Italy, not a smoking husk, and they made it as much as they could an active policy to try and win over the locals. They would extract ransoms, certainly, and some were quite expensive, but for the most part they left the cities physically intact. Once they settled into rule, the wealthiest of the Lombards, particularly the dukes, settled into the urban centers as their new places of residence, a distinctly different strategy from the Franks that settled in Greater France, Although, you can't blame them. There is nothing in the countryside, whereas the cities are where all the wealthy keep their stuff. Plus, if you settle in the city, then you can just take over the administration, which plows a whole lot of tax money into your coffers. They quickly learned the value of these Roman institutions for the political control of their particular section of their former empire, and for their tax benefits, and sought to turn the bureaucracy to their own ends. It was here that the cellular structure of the Roman Empire began to morph into a shape we would come to recognize in later periods of Italian history. The municipal governments had certainly taken a beating, and in some places the bishops were the only members of the patrician class left in governmental positions. But the machinery of local administration remained and took orders from whoever was left and from whoever was in control, and if that was a Lombard duke who really only controlled one city, then so be it. That was the only horizon the local officials had ever known anyway, and everything beyond their borders could burn so long as they got their paycheck and their patronage. Aiding the Lombard integration into Roman society were the legal reforms passed by Theodoric and maintained by the Eastern Roman administration. Though the Lombards lacked familiarity with bureaucratic administration, the set-aside of one-third of the land for the maintenance of the military caste proved an easy economic buffer to allow the smooth transfer of administration. The Lombards understood land, and so they simply took over possession of this third of the land for the maintenance of the new administration, a confiscation that would have impacted the average citizen not at all, and the upper-class locals very little. Only those tied to the eastern administration would have had any claim to the land, and those individuals would likely not have been hanging around anyway. 
Once settled into place, the Lombards had divided up control into the dukedoms that we have already discussed, with the dukes assuming control of the military assets of their region, notably their region's one-third of the total land. The kings were eventually left with comparatively small holdings, which almost certainly contributed to the instability after the assassination of Albion. Whatever the case, when Albion's grandson was elected king and the interregnum was brought to a close, part of the deal was that each duke gave half of his lands to the king for the maintenance of the kingdom. This set the kingdom on a firm cash flow footing, and put some semblance of kingdom-level administration into each dukedom. The story of the next two centuries is one of gradual integration into Roman society on the one hand, and gradual annexation of Eastern Roman territory on the other. Domestically, we can follow the integration process via the laws promulgated by the various Lombard kings, notably by Richald. To oversimplify, the Lombards fought to maintain themselves as a separate warrior caste, even as they gradually intermarried into the Roman senatorial class. The law codes maintained separate legal systems for the Lombards and the Romans, with the Lombard one being based on things like trialed by combat and guild, whereas the Roman system remains one based on civil law. But the old Germanic traditions had no answer to many of the problems being created by administrative duties and contract disputes, and so as the Lombards spent more and more time with their Roman neighbors and wives and husbands, gradually Roman concepts began to enter into the legal codes. Interestingly, this went both ways. To a large extent, the Germanic traditions for dealing with criminal offenses were based on the feud and the duel, with Wehrgeld being a lame attempt to stamp out long-term violence. As the Roman aristocracy became more and more Germanic, there are fewer and fewer records of criminal cases making it before Roman courts. Instead, we see evidence of Romans banding together in clan groups and pursuing collective defense and retaliation, much as the Germans had. This extended to their relationship with their erstwhile landlords, some of whom found entire regions unwilling to deal with rent payments. And I'm not talking a long-term rent strike, I'm talking ambushes in the mountain passes. These trends in culture and legal practice had clear long-term impacts. First, local and regional bureaucratic administration revived under the Lombards. Not in the same way as it had under the Goths, but it was there. Reinforcing this was the second point. Even as the strict legal form of the municipal government was degraded by desertion and war, communal identity became exceptionally important. Family ties were paramount for all strata of society. For the wealthy, they helped smooth the appointment to government jobs and ensured the flow of the all-important patronage. For the poor, the extended family was your guard and your help. Given that land ownership could be widely scattered, even amongst the lower classes, family could reliably watch over distant fields and tend to crops, and be expected to share the work and the profits. Family and family alliances, and the counterpunch threat that they posed, also served to protect the individual from criminal assault, even by the wealthy. You might be able to stab me without legal consequence, but good luck getting taxes out of my village ever again if you do. Also, good luck walking out of my village again if you do. We actually have many records of this kind of rural vendetta, and apparently the authorities were often helpless against it. Of course, people in bigger, more important family groups would have more of a chance of getting away with stuff than people in less important family groups, so it wasn't a perfect system, and it did tend to force people to conform to group identities. Over time, as the exercise of ownership became more familial, it also became collective, and organized under legal structures governed by clan patriarchs and sometimes matriarchs, under legal agreements that were expected to span generations. All this talk of Lombard integration with the Roman populace flies in the face of two persistent myths about this era. First, that the Lombards never integrated and had no impact on Italian culture. 
Certainly, some elements in Lombard society fought assimilation tooth and nail. As much as the Lombards admired Roman culture and wealth, there was a strong feeling that if the Romans were so great, then the Lombards must be that much greater, because they had beaten them militarily. This pride in Lombard military prowess had deep cultural roots, and helped keep the Lombards at arm's length, at least from the common Romans. This feeling was indeed codified in separate legal codes for the two groups and in various social taboos, but this was hardly a uniform feeling. As we have seen, many Lombards admired Roman culture and were certainly willing to make use of it in administrating their new territories. Even if it was a slow process, the Lombard kingdom existed for 200 years, hardly a brief interlude. Furthermore, the Lombard dukedoms continued to exist in southern Italy for a further 300 years, and the Lombard aristocracy in northern Italy remained such a central feature of the area that they named it Lombardy. The second persistent myth is that the Lombards were slathering heretical Arians. Because of their heathenism, they were a threat to the Pope, and the Pope turned on the Frank signal and Charlemagne charged over the Alps just in time to save the Pope from the mean old Lombards who had inexplicably tied him to the railroad tracks before flying away on their big German zeppelins whilst twirling their long, gross German beards. I may have gotten a little bit carried away there, but I think you get the point. The Lombards were heretics, they threatened the Pope, and Charlemagne was just forced to conquer them to keep the Pope safe. I think given everything we've just learned about the Lombard assimilation, I think most of you can probably see some of the big cracks in this picture. If the Romans were Catholic, and the Lombards were integrating, surely there would have been an attendant uptake of Catholicism as well? Well, yes, observant listener, well spotted. But the story is even a bit more complicated than your astute observations have deduced. I'm going to blow your minds now, but in 568, when the Lombard kingdom was founded, the Catholic Church as we know it did not exist in any recognizable form. Certainly, there was an archbishop in Rome that many people called the Pope, and according to some observers, he had pride of place, particularly in the Latin-speaking West. But there was no official legally set hierarchy in the Church beyond priest, bishop, and archbishop. The Pope was one archbishop of many, and even as an archbishop with pride of place, he shared that distinction with the so-called Pentarchy of the archbishops of Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Furthermore, within the Roman Empire, the appointment of all church officials were subject to the veto of the emperor. As you will no doubt note, Rome was, in the Lombard period, located in the territory of the Eastern Roman Empire, meaning that the popes were very much subject to the pleasure of the emperor in Constantinople. This period is thus called the Greek Papacy, as the popes and many of their hangers-on were generally people loyal to the Greek-speaking Eastern Empire. Despite some grumbling, this situation was accepted as legal, because the church respected Roman law, and under Roman law, it was legal. End of story. From a doctrinal perspective, the Catholic religion was still in the process of deciding on a set doctrine, and if by 568 much of what we would recognize as Catholicism had been set, much of it was not, and certainly was not standardized. Catholics in Ireland prayed in a very different way from those in Egypt, even though everyone was supposedly all one big happy Christian family. To be fair, this seems a lot nicer than the version of the Catholic Church that demands absolute uniformity that we will meet later but I am getting ahead of myself. Given the wide varieties of practice within the Catholic faith, a faith that was at root a monotheistic religion that purported to all draw on the same biblical source material, it is probably unsurprising that some of these practices developed in a way that made others uncomfortable. I want to avoid getting into any theological discussions today, as that is an issue for a later episode, but some discussion of the history of heresies of this time period is necessary for our story. 
The Aryans, who were followers of a guy named Arius and who had nothing to do with Hitler, pretty much everyone who talks about the Aryans needs to say that, but moving on, they were considered heretics at this time and had been expelled from the church pretty definitively by 568, but it was a very slow process that took most of two centuries. And even after the expulsion, the differences between the practices of the Arians and the Catholics would be pretty marginal to an outsider in terms of their day-to-day -day worship activities. Heretics within the empire were subject to persecution, but it was more of the you-can't-get-a-job-if-you-think-like-that version of persecution, not the I'm-going-to-burn-you-alive-now kind. Before being declared a heresy, some of the Arians had gone off on official imperial conversion missions, and one of these missions had successfully converted the Goths to Christianity. At the time, the fact that it was an Aryan Christianity was not seen as a big deal. From the Gothic territory in what was then the Northern Balkans, Aryan missionaries spread far and wide, moving with the currents of the migration period. One group of Goths moved into Italy under Theodoric, and it was these Aryan Goths that probably brought Arianism to the previously pagan Winili armies. When the Winili and their heterogeneous army moved into Italy, Arianism went with them, but the armies were by no means Aryan armies, they just had some Arians in them. Are we clear? The Arians were not the only heretics in Catholicism, and indeed they were not the only ones in Italy during the reign of the Lombards. Most notably, controversies broke out in 622 and 730, known as the Monothelitian and Iconoclast controversies respectively, that would seriously confuse the religious picture of the Lombard kingdom. Monothelitian doctrine, after an initial period of percolation through the intellectual classes, was initially espoused by the emperor, the one man with real power over the whole of the church, or most of the church, the populous parts that were within the empire. Anyway, the Monothelitian doctrine was opposed by the Pope and the leaders from other, more far-flung parts of the religious establishment, further away from Constantinople and imperial control. Councils were called by the Emperor, and all these councils seemed to spookily agree with the Emperor, leading to several decades of standoff between the Monothelitian imperial in-crowd and those out on the periphery. Eventually, the Emperor decided that the Pope needed to be brought in line by whatever means, and Pope Martin was arrested by Eastern Roman troops and condemned to death as a traitor. Shortly after Martin's death, there was a new Emperor, and a new council, headed by this new, more conciliatory Emperor, and they decided that monothelitism was a bad idea, actually, and should probably be suppressed as a heresy. Podcast Footnote if you want to know more about the history of the papacy, I really recommend you check out the History of the Papacy podcast. It is a great podcast, and Steve Guerra presents a wealth of information about the history of one of the key institutions of our story. In all honesty, I have worried a bit about stepping on his toes in this podcast, but I think the sheer scale of data presented by Steve means that nothing that I can do here will detract from the enjoyability of his show. Steve takes an approach to history similar to myself in the sense that nothing is taken for granted, Although at the time of recording he is somewhere around the year 400, I have no doubt that what he has already covered will be invaluable to the listener, and that what he will cover in the future will only be more valuable. End podcast footnote. Rome came out of this more or less smelling like roses. It could claim to be the rallying point for true orthodoxy, which had never bowed to political pressure, even at the cost of poor Pope Martin. On the other hand, the stalwart orthodoxy of the West could be kind of overstated, actually. It happens that a number of the bishops of northern Italy, in the Lombard region, had ended up espousing the Monothelitian heresy preferred by the imperial in-crowd. Of course, papal relations with Constantinople were put under enormous strain, which was not a small issue. 
Under pressure from the Lombards, the Eastern Roman administration had come to rely more and more on locally recruited troops, money, and supplies. While the Eastern administration continued to operate out of Ravenna, Rome had become a load-bearing pillar in its fight for existence. This was because, A, as we've said, church ideology in the West continued to espouse loyalty to the empire, and B, the papacy now outright owned all the land in the Roman region in Umbria. This was apparently enough to compensate for the loss of the North African territories to Islamic invasion. The logistical and ideological assistance of the Pope in opposing the Lombards was essential to Eastern Roman power in Italy. So long as the Empire could keep the Pope on side, things were okay, and the regular application of both threats and protection did a lot to keep the situation copacetic. But the Monothelitian controversy exposed some serious cracks in the relationship. For the Lombards, who were in the process of assimilating, the situation created bewildering complexity. Conversion to Christianity was probably a key first step in the assimilation process, but the Lombards were presented with choices. Firstly, Arianism was undoubtedly present in their own ranks since before they entered Italy. While not a majority religion, it was the preferred religion of the Goths and was therefore possibly more familiar and in line with their own Lombard cultural practices. The choice between Arianism and Catholicism is often portrayed, even in modern sources, as one between traditionalism and assimilation. In this view, Catholicism was viewed as a potential Greek fifth column, since the Pope was under imperial control, while Arianism presented a Christian option outside the hands of external forces, a somewhat uniquely Lombard form of Christianity. But in the 600s, who even knew what Catholicism was? The local bishops were towing the Greek party line, but were being condemned by Rome as foreign heretics even as the Pope continued his military cooperation with the administration in Ravenna. Initially, it seemed that the Arians were ascendant, and a number of early kings were clearly Arian. But as the church got its house in order, more and more Lombards became Catholics, like their Roman subjects. By the time of the end of the Lombard kingdom, the aristocracy was split between Catholic and Arian doctrines. This has been read by many historians as the source of religious and cultural strife, as traditionalist Arian Lombards engaged in internecine court intrigue and civil strife with the assimilationist pro-imperial Catholics. Certainly, religion was not a source of unity within the Lombard kingdom, but there are a few other elements to this story. For a king, Catholicism would have served to tie the central government to the bureaucracy and the common people, for whom Arianism had no attraction. For an Arian king, his religion would serve to bind the king to a large chunk of his military aristocracy, possibly more important than bureaucrats and commoners. On the other hand, the converse is also true, and a king that pushed his Catholicism might alienate his army, while an Arian one could face civil discord in a sullen bureaucracy, unwilling to give him supplies and contemplating a palace coup. This was far from the only source of disunity within the Lombard monarchy. The 36 dukes all had a fair amount of independence, as we've already seen, and the dukes of Spolento, Tuscany, and Benevento were separated from the kingdom proper by strips of heavily fortified Roman territory. The economic imperatives of the dukes put an enormous strain on the kingdom. We've already discussed how trade was not at this time the basis of the Italian economy. As with much of Europe at this time, that made land revenue the ultimate source of all wealth. The Lombards were able to spread around this wealth by utilizing the patronage system of the Roman administration to reward their followers. But ultimately what people wanted was land, and land is something of a finite resource. Once the kingdom was established and stable, most of the land was spoken for, and giving more land would either undermine the financial security of the king or duke, or require the king or duke to dispossess someone else. 
dispossessing someone else could be done internally if someone had broken a law or could be eliminated, but the most valuable source of new land came from external expansion, which meant the dukes put enormous pressure on the king to externally expand. The struggle for patronage and land underlie in some way most of the aspects of the Lombard kingdom. It meant that even Catholic kings could not ignore opportunities for expansion, even if it came at the expense of the empire or of the pope. Once most of the easy land grabs had been made, there was still a need for land, and at times when expansion was impractical, kings sometimes were forced to give some of their own land, a practice that undermined the financial stability of the kingdom over time. The alternative, not giving anyone land, would annoy the aristocracy and might drive them into the hands of opposing court factions that might support the king's overthrow. The churchmen that wrote the chronicles blamed this bloodshed on religious strife, but they had a horse in the race, as it were, and so it's an open question as to how much of a role religion played in these events. Many historians still follow the line that the political history of the Lombards was one of religious strife. Chris Wickham, all cards on the table, my main source for this episode, maintains that religion played a very small role in the Lombard state, as evidenced by the fact that Arianism versus Catholicism is rarely if ever mentioned in the Lombard legal documents, and the fact that all Lombard kings took land from the Pope and the Empire regardless of their religion. He points out that the organization of the realm during the time of the Monothelitian controversy may have turned the Lombards off of the idea of religion as a source of unity. Basically, contrary to common notions of medieval kingship, the Lombards didn't use any form of religion as a basis of their state ideology. This presents a strong contrast to the Franks. I tend to find Chris Wickham's hypothesis the more convincing one, but I think it's easy to overstate the case. Religion and cultural identity are part of the human experience, and it would be inconceivable if they did not become an important part of the fights that broke out within the Lombard polity, particularly in the court. That said, the ability of the kingdom to impact the lives of common people was fairly limited, and the idea of mass-scale religious persecution by the Lombards is silly, anachronistic, and not supported by the evidence one iota. From the point of view of the papacy, of course, all these fine distinctions would have been cold comfort for the fact that the Lombards were expansionists, seemed unstoppable, and were taking their land. The Pope didn't care whether the king of the Lombards was a Catholic forced into expansion by economic imperatives. At the end of the day, the Pope lost valuable territory, and so they were enemies. But then again, enemies were something the Popes were not in short supply of. The Saracens were already raiding in the Mediterranean. They had Lombards to the north and south, and the aristocratic mobs that increasingly had a role in the politics of Rome were often not too friendly. But so long as the papacy and the Eastern Roman Empire were on the same side, things could kind of be held in check. The Pope could always call on Eastern Roman troops to keep order in his city, and the Eastern Roman navy would patrol the Mediterranean and help keep the Lombards at bay. This all changed in 722, with the outbreak of our second major religious controversy, the Iconoclasm Controversy. Iconoclasm is a less technical debate than the Monothelitian controversy, so I'm going to take a moment to just say that the Old Testament, or the Torah, whatever you prefer, bans the use of graven images in religious worship lest it be confused for idolatry. This is something taken to heart by Jews and Muslims, but not so much Christians generally. As the armies of the Muslim Empire were at this time busily beating the snot out of the armies of Eastern Rome, a lot of people in Eastern Rome began to think that maybe this might have something to do with it. Why they chose to focus on this one rule rather than the 613 other ones is probably a very interesting technical point that I don't have time to get into right now. Emperor Leo III of the Eastern Roman Empire ended up being one of these people. 
And as head of the Catholic Church, and the guy who gave everybody their jobs, when he called a bunch of religious councils to decide on this issue, they all spookily agreed with him. The exceptions were people in far-flung, hard-to-control areas of the Empire, or areas outside of the Empire's control entirely. The standard bearer for this group of bishops and archbishops was, of course, the Pope in Rome, once again staking their claim as the true upholders of orthodoxy in the Catholic faith. The last time this kind of thing had happened, the Emperor ended up sending Eastern Roman troops into Rome and kidnapping and murdering the Pope. That's not how things went this time, whether that's because the Empire's grip in Italy had slipped, whether they were worried about the suspect loyalties of locally recruited troops, or whether Emperor Leo III was just not patient enough to bide his time and strike at an opportune moment. When the Emperor demanded that the Pope adopt iconoclasm in 722, and the Pope refused, the Emperor removed all areas directly controlled by Eastern Roman forces from the Pope's influence, effectively Ravenna and southern Italy, as well as some areas in the Balkans. The response of the mostly locally recruited garrisons in Italy being going into open revolt in favor of the Pope. At around the same time, the Lombard kingdom was consolidated under King Liutprand, who was energetic, smart, and a cunning diplomat, as well as a capable war leader. He made a canny marriage alliance with the Franks, he made peace with the Avars, and then created alliances with the papacy against the Eastern Romans, and with the Eastern Romans against the papacy. The result was massive territorial gains from both parties. The Byzantines lost the Romagna and the Mark, while the papacy lost control of most of Umbria. Though Liutprand died, his son was able to keep this process going, and the high point came in 732, when the Lombards managed to take Ravenna itself in a surprise attack. They were not able to hold it, as the papacy was able to call in a fleet of 60 warships from Venice to drive them out, but the event really focused the mind of the papacy on a few issues. Even if things could be patched up with the Eastern Roman Empire, they could no longer conceivably be counted on as a counterweight to the Lombards. It was at this point that the diplomatic eyes of the popes lighted upon the Franks, who had converted to Catholicism way back in 496. For the Franks, in contrast to the Lombards, the incorporation of Catholicism into their political ideology had paid huge dividends. Lest anyone doubt the critical importance of this ideology, we have court documents from the pre-Carolingian Frankish kingdom of the remaining Roman cities in what was then called Gaul, sending legions to join the Frankish army during wartime. The ability to mobilize the loyalty of the populace was not something to be lightly cast aside. Though the practice of legionary combat in the name of the Franks gradually faded as, as the two peoples merged more seamlessly over time, and as the power of the northern cities waned, the cohesion and manpower that this ideology created helped the Frankish monarchy become something of a powerhouse in the region, this cohesion and power was only increased in 751, when Pepin the Short, who had hitherto been the equivalent of Prime Minister, deposed the last Merovingian king and set him to a monastery. As we have seen, the Franks, much like the Lombards, were attempting to maintain an imperial order, using a land-based economy to support their military. Though both kingdoms were possessed of an expansionist military caste, and had just finished grinding all viable opposition to dust, the Frankish Empire was much larger, and had more productive farmland, had better internal communications, and had done a better job of consolidating its gains. The key to that consolidation was the notion that the king was the friend of the church and civilization. By contrast, the economic and political problems in Lombardy exploded into the forefront in the years immediately following the retreat from Ravenna. 
kings were unable to eliminate internal opposition, and so much strength was wasted on internal conflicts. Attempts to deepen their political support by adopting more Roman laws and traditions only further angered the military aristocracy, who was also starving for new land, as most of the new land had already been taken. It was in this context that King Eistulf, an expansionist friend of the aristocracy, took the throne. Eistulf pushed hard against the remaining Roman territories on the peninsula, ultimately taking Ravenna again, and this time definitively. While Eistulf was an able military commander, he was a mediocre politician and a terrible diplomat. His assault on Roman territory divided his kingdom, even as the papacy attempted to bring the Franks down on Eistulf's rear. Three-way negotiations followed, but it soon came out that Eistulf had been trying to convince Pepin the Short's brother Carloman to rebel. Since Pepin the Short had only just taken the throne, this was something of a serious threat on paper. This sounded like a good way to destabilize a new monarchy, but given the distances, the difficulty of travel, and the fact that the Carolingians had actually been ruling from behind the scenes for several generations now, this was probably not the best move. The Lombards needed a treaty more than the Franks did. With this betrayal out in the open, the Franks sent their army against the Lombards, who failed to defend the Alpine passes as a result of internal disunity. With the Franks out onto the Po Plain, there was really nothing to stop them, and Eistulf was forced to become a protectorate of the Carolingian kingdom. The Roman territories he had taken were given to the Pope, not the Eastern Romans, as they probably should have been under legal terms. And then the Franks withdrew. The Lombards limped along for another generation. In practice, they were left to their own devices, but after the reign of Pepin, everyone knew the way the deck was stacked. The new king, Desiderius, played his diplomatic hand skillfully by marrying his daughter to Charlemagne's brother, who had inherited half of the Frankish kingdom. With the southern Franks friendly and the northern Franks far away, the papacy nearly entered into an alliance with Desiderius as the only viable option. But the untimely death of Charlemagne's brother brought the entire realm into Charlemagne's hands, and brought Charlemagne's borders up to the Alps. The Pope resumed his alliance with the newly reunited Frankish kingdom, leaving Desiderius in a rather difficult position. Torn between the internal necessity of expansion and the external impossibility of expansion, Desiderius decided on a desperate course of action, attacking the Pope. Possibly he hoped that if he took over the Roman lands swiftly enough, he'd be able to use the Pope as a bargaining chip, or present enough of a united front as to warn off Charlemagne, but that's not what happened. And really, no one really should have expected it to. The idea that Charlemagne boldly charged down in the nick of time was really less a heroic entrance and more of a foregone conclusion. Desiderius was not able to make ground fast enough. The Franks met the Lombards in the Alpine passes. Again, Lombard disunity allowed the Franks to pass. The capital at Pavia was taken, and the kingdom of the Lombards was ended. But not Lombard rule in Italy. As we've already discussed, the Lombard aristocrats would end up giving their name to a significant portion of the Po plain. But in the south... Lombard duchies of Spolento and Benevento remained. This survival is due in part to the tenaciousness of the aristocratic Lombard identity, which you'll remember has spent the past half-century asserting themselves against Latin and Greek-Roman alternatives, and in part due to the haphazard nature of Frankish administration. Even if Rome was of central emotional and political importance to the empire's ideology, Italy itself drifted between being a burden and an afterthought for the Frankish administration. It was certainly wealthy, but it was isolated from Charlemagne's power base in northern Europe by the Alps, a crossing that was unpleasant even in the best of times. 
that power base was not so isolated from the Saxons and the Frisians, who had been the original target of Charlemagne's massive army, and who would continue to raid into Frankish territory for the next decade. So Charlemagne's rule in Italy was characterized by a constant back and forth, as the emperor came south, stomped out a problem, and returned north. He incorporated the Po plain into his kingdom, and installed a few Frankish dukes in 774. The papal possessions were restored. But the important and powerful border duchies of Spolento and Friuli rebelled in 776, which brought Charlemagne south again, at which point many of the more powerful Lombard dukes were removed and replaced by Frankish nobles. Importantly, Charlemagne did not move into southern Italy to deal with the dukes of Benevento. In 787, it came to light that the Duke of Benevento was calling himself the Lombard King, at which point Charlemagne proceeded far enough down the peninsula to scare the Duke into swearing fealty, and then turn around and head home. In 792, the Duke of Benevento again declared independence, and again Charles marched south, but this time the result was a draw militarily. Benevento declared lip service loyalty to the Franks, and set aside the kingly title, but never did take orders from Charlemagne. This created some further problems. By now, Benevento knew better than to attack the Pope or the Franks, but that did not prevent them from attacking Eastern Roman territory where they could. The last remaining Eastern Roman possessions, remember, were in Southern Italy. This created the situation where a supposed vassal of Charlemagne was attacking Eastern Roman possessions. The Eastern Romans protested to Charlemagne, who couldn't publicly admit he had no control of his vassal, but also wanted to be on friendly terms with the Eastern Romans. His responses were in the vein of, I'll look into it, but it's probably your fault, while privately sending angry letters to the Lombard Dukes of Benevento. When Charlemagne was crowned Emperor of Rome in 800, it was the last straw, as of course the Eastern Romans considered themselves the actual emperors of Rome. The Eastern Romans thereupon declared war on Charlemagne. The resulting conflict was complex and is hard to capture succinctly. Initially, both parties were pretty annoyed and flailed at each other, but they were separated by rather significant distances. The Eastern Roman fleet raided the Italian coast with impunity, and some skirmishing occurred on the few direct borders between the empires, which mostly went Charlemagne's way. But neither entity was really able to pose an existential threat to the other. And at the end of the day, it was really in both sides' best interests to paper this whole thing over. They really didn't have any interest in each other's territory, and it was better for them ideologically to get along. By all accounts, both sides had reached a peaceful accord by 805, but at the flashpoints emotions had run high during the conflict, and it took several decades for things to cool down. Of particular importance is Venice, an island of technically Eastern Roman territory in the solidly Frankish northern Italy. Pro-Frankish, pro-Republican, and pro-Eastern Roman factions vied for power in the city. In such a climate, the proximity of the Franks was well balanced by the political skill and naval power of the Eastern Romans, and things seesawed wildly back and forth within the city. A pro-Frankish coup was put down by a Byzantine fleet in 807, which led to a pro-Frankish backlash in 808. But when the pro-Frankish faction called for Frankish troops to secure its power, the populace rose against the Doge. When the hastily put-together Frankish army arrived, under Charlemagne's son and heir, Pepin, they found a hostile Venice surrounded by malarial marshes patrolled by armed ships. Nonetheless, the Franks managed to take many of the islands at the mouth of the lagoon, with only three of the islands of modern Venice holding out. Venice was already a formidable naval power at this point, but was not yet the city we think of today. 
The Rialto Islands, the core of the modern city, were at this time only sparsely inhabited, and the Franks had a large, if ill-prepared, army. It was a close-run thing, and pitched battles were fought all through the winter. But the Venetians held. Trade ships were able to leave and bring back food, leading the Venetians to taunt the Franks by firing bread at them from catapults. When winter turned to spring and summer, the mosquitoes of the lagoon rose in clouds, and the Franks fell in droves. The Franks finally agreed to leave in return for a yearly tribute, and a few weeks later Charlemagne's son Pepin died, leaving Louis the Pious as Charlemagne's heir. The siege was undoubtedly a disaster for the Franks, if for no other reason than it left Louis the Pious in charge. Nonetheless, it was something of a close shave for the Venetians as well. Historians still debate the real importance of this battle, but from the point of view of the Venetians, it was a defining piece of their national narrative. Whatever differences they had had before the arrival of the Franks, they had united in the face of a threat to their city, and that would serve as a rallying story throughout their independent history. Even as late as the revolutions of 1848, when Austrian cannon were being lined up at the causeway that led to the city, the Venetians told this story as a rallying cry and a, a reason to hang together. After 810, the conflict with the Eastern Romans settled down, and so let's take a moment to look at the Frankish rule in Italy, as it was constructed by Charlemagne. From an international perspective, he and his heirs were never able to conquer the Lombards and Eastern Roman cities of the south, but the papal possessions of central Italy acted as a convenient buffer, and the southern Italian territories fell rapidly to fighting each other with reckless abandon. Internally, as I've mentioned, Frankish nobles had replaced Lombard ones in many of the major duchies, but not in all of them, and not at the lower levels of the aristocracy, which remained solidly Lombard. So now, in addition to a hybrid Lombard-Roman aristocracy ruling over a Roman population, Italy also had a Frankish elite, a Lombard-Roman aristocracy, and a Roman underclass. The Franks accentuated the situation by not really understanding the Italian environment. You'll remember that the Lombards had happily moved into the cities when they became dukes in Italy. The Franks did not, preferring rural villas. This isolated them from society and made them dependent on Lombard advisors and functionaries in order to run the country. So the political structure that began to form was one where the Franks were technically in charge and had control of the military, but required Lombard functionaries to control the Roman bureaucratic administration. For the most part, the Franks left this administration in place, but it became garbled as local power brokers tried to figure out how imperial edicts and laws intended for conditions in Francia applied to the more complicated political structures of Italy. To help manage the situation, it became practice early on for the emperor to leave a trusted son or relative in charge of Italy in order to ensure proper governance, which is why Pepin was on hand to die besieging Venice, and why Louis the Pious would keep sending Lothair back to Italy. The religious situation in Italy now closely tracked these social changes. The foundation of monasteries had started early in Italy, and during the Frankish period they started to become major landowners as a result of donations by various nobles. Monasteries served a number of political functions, in addition to their spiritual ones. Because they were places with a settled hierarchy and full of educated people, monasteries had a stabilizing influence on their region. They also brought in agricultural best practices and tended to move society towards contract-based organization and away from having property held by vendetta and threat. They also provided pools of literate men to staff the bureaucracy. Bishops had a similar influence in the cities, and so served to cement the political control of the urban areas. Chris Wickham observes that, based on the names and surviving records, the monasteries and religious institutions of Italy seem to have primarily been staffed by Lombards and not by Franks. 
It's not clear why this is the case, although one suspects that there was something of a colonial administration going on in Italy. Franks had been sent to Italy to keep it governed. They would not choose to go on their own. As a result, there was not the spare population available to fill church offices as was so often the case elsewhere. The Lombards, on the other hand, had second sons to spare, and so they put them into positions of power within the church. Whatever the case, this tendency underlies the probability that the Franks were kept separate from the mass of Italian society, and the Lombards were confirmed as the new face of the Roman bureaucracy. This cemented the Lombard integration with the Romans, even as it excluded the Franks. For us as historical observers, I hope this also serves to critically undermine the imperial propaganda of the Lombards as universally Aryan heretics, as they were now serving as the staff of the Catholic administration of the kingdom. This was the situation in northern Italy for most of the years of the Carolingian Empire. After the death of Charlemagne, however, an additional element was added, that of an absentee administration. Lothair, you will remember, was the son appointed by Louis the Pious to oversee Italy, and you will also undoubtedly remember that he spent most of his reign in raising armies in Italy and leading them north to fight his father or his brothers. This cannot have helped the integration of the Frankish elites into Italy, but it does seem to have helped pull the Lombards into the empire, at least in the short term. As Lombard aristocrats were trusted with administrative and military roles, they were often rewarded, as was increasingly common in the empire, with land north of the Alps. Much of it was in Italy, but substantial portions were not. This had the effect of tying the Frankish and Lombard sections of the imperial hierarchy together, even if the stitching was still somewhat awkward. Of course, the Frankish administrators of the Italian kingdom had their primary land holdings outside of Italy proper, meaning that they would never side with the Lombards against the Frankish Empire. Presuming, of course, that they could tell who actually represented the empire. All this kept the upper levels of the aristocracy loyal to the empire through much of what followed. To the south, things had become quite complicated. The Duchy of Spolento was able to use their fertile agricultural territory in the Mark to fuel its expansion, but as that expansion was mostly into less valuable mountain territories, there was a certain tendency towards diminishing returns. Spolento was also much more vulnerable to Frankish incursions, and so was much more closely tied to the Frankish administration of northern Italy. Benevento had a similar trajectory, but was further away from the Frankish Empire. Benevento was, of course, based in the city of Benevento, which lies at the heart of the fertile Volturno River Valley. It spent a lot of energy pushing into the surrounding mountainous countryside. As in northern Italy, the countryside here was dotted with innumerable cities, but in the south the landscape meant that these cities were small communes, well located for defense, but not well located for producing agricultural surpluses. At its height, Benevento was able to bring most of southern Italy to heel, but this was hardly a self-sustaining military machine. Critically, the fertile areas along the coasts proved the hardest to control. As we've discussed, most of these areas reacted to the iconoclasm controversy by asserting their independence and shifting for themselves, something that was possible due to the neglect shown to the territory by Constantinople. By 800, however, the situation out east had begun to stabilize, which allowed the imperial administration to direct more money and ships, if not necessarily more men, to the west. Ultimately, however, Benevento was able to capture the sophisticated trading cities of Capua and Salerno. This ended up being actually rather bad for the Duchy of Benevento. These were wealthy cities located in the fertile Vesuvian plain, and the dukes placed in command of these regions were rapidly able to establish independent power bases and resist the central power of Benevento. 
Simultaneously, the power of the Saracens in the Mediterranean began to be felt by all parties. Raids had been taking place on the islands since 652, but starting in 827, the Saracens began to present an existential threat to everyone involved. The islands of Malta and Mallorca were conquered outright. On Sardinia and Corsica, the Saracens took the coasts, while the natives fought a vicious guerrilla war with the invaders from the interior of the islands. In Sicily, a long seesawing contest was fought between the Saracens and the Eastern Romans between 827 and 909, while on the mainland the raids hit nearly every point on the western shore. This made it nearly impossible for any major landlord to control their area unless they had loyal armed retainers on site prepared to meet a raid. This led to a downturn in the ability of ecclesiastical landowners like bishops or the Pope or monasteries to control their territories. Returning north, you'll remember that in episode 11 I mentioned that Louis the Younger, grandson of Louis the Pious, was made king of Italy, and that he was a good and energetic king. You'll also remember that when his brothers died unexpectedly, he lost his right to inherit their lands because when they died of supposedly natural causes, he had been away doing energetic king things. What he had been doing was invading southern Italy in an attempt to quiet down the hornet's nest I have just described. Louis had been busy since his ascension in northern Italy and had been doing something of an admirable job of reversing decades of Frankish neglect. He had corrected abuses in the church and the legal code, set the bureaucracy on a firmer footing, and took steps to centralize the administration. By 869, he felt secure enough to look towards some form of expansion. That wasn't going to happen in the north, as the Peace of Verdun had the empire locked in a familial Cold War. But in the south, he saw an opportunity. The Caucasus Belli here was the seizure of the Adriatic port city of Bari by the Saracens, who established an emirate there in 847. They raided all around Apulia and southern Italy, and the Lombards were too busy hiring the Saracens as mercenaries to drive them out. Declaring himself the benevolent ally of the Eastern Romans and the Lombards, Louis the Younger marched south with an army and promised the Eastern Romans his daughter in a marriage alliance if they showed up with a fleet to support him. This alliance fell through, but Louis was able to achieve enough success to tempt a group of Croatian pirates into supporting him from the sea. After three years of campaigning, the city fell in 871. There was much rejoicing and clapping of backs between the Franks and the Lombards who had been part of the expedition, and the Eastern Romans were pretty happy about the situation even if they hadn't really helped out at all. And everything was rosy and great until it became clear that Louis wasn't just marching back north. He hung around, with his big army, increasingly asserting his supposed feudal overlordship over the Lombards. He intervened in their civil wars, and officially split Capua and Salerno off from Benevento. Hoping to make clear his unhappiness with the situation, the Duke of Benevento politely went to the Emperor's palace one night with an army, surrounded it with all due dignity, and then graciously attacked it, killed most of Louis's retainers, stole all his money, and threw him in jail. Only the distraction of a fresh Saracen raid forced the Duke to let Louis go with a promise not to seek revenge. Of course, the first thing Louis did was to try and get revenge, but Benevento was still too powerful to be assaulted by just the army of the Kingdom of Italy, and so in 874 Louis returned to the north, where he died in 875, opening up the Kingdom of Italy for conquest by Charles the Bald. This was the end of competent regional government in Italy. The widening gyre of Frankish politics increasingly drew away the attention of the men sent to govern Italy, leaving the Lombard aristocrats and small-time Frankish nobles to shift for themselves. Their rule was increasingly localized and self-serving. 
administrators focused on getting land as reward for government services, increasingly at the expense of the church, and imperial landholdings who had no one to stand up for them with imperial attention centered elsewhere. This in turn undermined the ability of the bureaucracy to function. Villages and monasteries began fortifying themselves, the beginning of the so-called encastlemento. Essentially what this means is that, just like in France, the countryside was dotted with castles, except in this case, uh, many of those castles were actually fortified villages, where the villagers themselves had fortified their village as a measure of collective security. Eventually, of course, the aristocrats got in on the action, offering to build the fortifications in, ret in return for some special feudal dues. This increased the tendency of the countryside towards communal collectivism, and further pulled it away from the centralizing control of the regional bureaucracy. Conversely, it made it easier for wealthy landowners to directly control their land themselves without reference to any imperial structure. This is not to say no attempt was made to fix things. Famously, Charles the Bald met his end in Italy in 877, when he tried to help the Pope drive the Saracens out of a fortified camp just south of Rome. As we discussed in episode 11, this attempt met with disaster in no small part due to the lack of support from the local Lombard aristocracy. Lacking an army, Charles could not fight the Saracens, and when his nephew Carloman moved across the Alps, Charles was forced to flee for home, whereupon he died in the Alpine Passage. In the chaos that followed, the crown of Italy was a token more of prestige than something that represented actual control. Most of the Frankish rulers in Italy were from the eastern, German side of the empire, and they were mostly concerned with shoring up their own parochial interests. The men they put in charge of Italy were mostly locals who had no ability to act as a neutral voice in local politics. In the south, the Lombard duchies held on, but they were on a clear course of decline. The eastern Romans had used the breathing room provided by Louis to redirect resources away from the clear lost cause in Sicily to the revival of the administration of southern Italy. A gradual expansion began in Calabria and Apulia at the expense of the Lombards. A different tack was taken by the theoretically Roman cities of the Vesuvian plain. Amalfi in particular became very wealthy by trading neutrality in Saracen raids for trading privileges with Saracen home ports. This had the double benefit of damaging Amalfi's rivals and increasing their trading power. This is a key point, because, to be blunt, Amalfi is a terrible location for a major trading city. Those who visit it now comment on its quaint beauty, but the port is small, there's barely any arable land, and the villages that make it up are precariously perched halfway up a cliff. But the Amalfi mariners were skilled, and their diplomats no less so, and soon Amalfi had become the first really international Italian trade power since the fall of the Roman Empire. Not willing to be outdone, Naples began to also make deals with the Saracens, and became a rising power in trade as well. The Eastern Romans tried to reassert their control in the Vesuvian plain, and were in many ways successful, but this only served to bolster the position of Amalfi in Naples. In return for lip service submission to the Empire, Imperial troops took over the business of fighting the Lombards inland, while Naples and Amalfi set about expanding their trade networks and getting ridiculously wealthy. We've covered an absurd amount of ground today, and so I'm going to have to cut it here. The Lombard period of Italian history is actually quite fascinating, and it's often skimmed over by those eager to move quickly from the Gothic Wars to the Frankish Empire. I hope I've done an alright job of giving you a taste of the social processes at work in the post-imperial and Lombard period. We started with Odoacer, who is blamed for destroying the Roman Empire, but really saved most of what it meant to be Roman. Then we saw the kingdom of Theodoric, who almost created a successful Germano-Roman hybrid, but his polity was destroyed by political infighting and a resurgent eastern Rome. 
the Gothic Wars did material damage to the Roman bureaucracy for the first time, but it recovered under the Lombards and the various Eastern Roman dependencies. The Frankish invasion left an administration full of awkward compromises, and despite many attempts to fix the administration, imperial absenteeism and Saracen raiding left Italy by 888 bereft of any kind of regional administrative apparatus for the first time since the days of the Republic. Next time on Wittenberg to Westphalia, I actually have a special event. It's been a bit over a year since I first posted an episode, and I'd like to celebrate by doing that great history podcaster tradition, a question and answer episode. I probably should have given more notice. But it takes me so long between episodes, I figure it's not that big a deal. If you have any questions about pretty much anything, but about the show, about uh, me, about any of the topics we've covered you'd like clarified or gone into further depths, send me an email at wittenbergtowestphalia at gmail.com. Leave me a comment on Facebook or a comment on the website. Just be sure to do it by October 30th so that it can get into the episode. I'd love to hear from you, and uh, I can't wait to answer all your questions. So, thanks a whole bunch, and a very big thanks to Benjamin Ashwell of Talking History, the Italian Unification, for reading today's quote. And as always, thank you to Nautasurf, and see you next time. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.